Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley, and welcome back to the Thread Bible Podcast, God's Word tying together all the pieces of your life. This is a special episode of Thread. Uh, In the normal series of Thread Bible Podcasts, we go verse by verse, and I don't allow myself to deviate. But now we have landed the big story with Abraham, and I want to go back into a few elements that require me to go outside of this passage to help broaden our understanding. So today is one of those. Let me uh, get to the end of the story. You know, as our story ended, uh, God has, I'll just walk through the whole thing in 20 seconds. He had created a world with his big vision that he was going to live here, and he created two societies, a heavenly and an earthly society. And uh, this planet was the overlap place where the material and the spiritual world and the material and spiritual world beings would live together as one beautiful family. Then tragedy struck and rebellion began. The original rebel of the heavenly sons incited a rebellion among the human son and daughter that he had created, and now the whole planet became polluted and filled with violence. In the middle of the big story here, God has hit the global reset, wiped out the planet, left one man alive and his family and began to rebuild again, having made the decision he will never destroy the human race in mass again. He is not going to wipe out this planet like that. He will find a way to save the world. Well, within a generation, the same thing starts to happen. There is one human race. It is one culture, one language, one people, and they come together in a conspiracy against him. And that is Genesis chapter 11. And to save the world from another disaster, uh, the Creator God comes to a decision that He will divide humans. Humans are one race, one culture, one people, and He divides them into 70 nations, not 70 races, one race, the human race. And He divides them into 70 nations. They have their own language, culture, traditions, and they spread out upon the earth. And as they do, they are more or less going into exile away from him. He's not going to engage them personally. And uh, the Creator God puts a distance between himself and the people who wander off. He chooses one man, and he says, If you will be loyal to me, I will be your God and you will be my people, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. I will make a whole nation out of just you. And Abraham and his wife Sarah walk out with God into the desert, and this begins a new stream in the big story. And later we're going to go to that stream. What I want to focus on today is the division of the nations. This moment where a unified humanity becomes a fragmented humanity with separate divisions between themselves, and they wander off. And we get the story of this uh, in Genesis 11, but we get another version, another layer, I should say, of this story in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy is the last book of Moses, and it ends on this sort of odd note, you know, if you can imagine yourself as Moses, 
you're 120 years old, you are worn out from 40 years of wrestling against people who do not want to follow, they do not seem to want to be led, and many of them don't seem to be loyal to Yahweh, and you are nevertheless uh, compelled by God to lead them to follow him. That there's going to be one group of people in the world that knows him, knows his heart, knows his ways, and through this people, a seed will come, or the seed of this people will bring the blessing to all the 70 nations of the world. So this nation is part of God's big plan to save the world. So you're Moses, you're old, you're worn out, and in Deuteronomy 32, Yahweh speaks to Moses and he says, you are worn out and I'm going to bring you to your fathers. You're going to rest now and I'm going to bring you to me and you're going to die. But before you do, I have one more job for you to do. Okay, Lord, what's that job? I want you to write a song. And so God tells him, you need to write a song. And it's like, a song. Yeah, you got to write a song because this thing's going to become a big problem in the future. They're going to wander away and they're going to start worshiping the other Elohim. They're not going to just uh, follow me as they're supposed to, but they are going to go after the Elohim uh, gods, the Elohim of the 70 nations. They are going to worship them, and they're going to turn aside from them. And so I want you to write a song. Uh, you can find all this in Deuteronomy 31, verse 19 and 20. And Yahweh says it's going to be that they are going to turn to other gods and serve them, and they will provoke me and break my covenant, and then many evils and troubles are going to happen to them, and I want you to write a song. And this song will memorialize how there came to be nations, how I came to be related to them, and it will you know, hopefully lead the people to wake up in that day and to return to the Lord. So Moses writes this song, and it's really a song for Babylon thousands of years later, that they're going to uh, fail the Lord. He, he's going to allow them to be exiled into the nations, and then there, hopefully, they will wake up and cry out to the Lord, and he will come and rescue them. So he begins this song, and that is chapter 32. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain. Let my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb, and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of Yahweh. Ascribe greatness to our Elohim. He is the rock. His work is perfect, and all his ways are justice. He is a God, an Elohim of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. This is the, the prologue that leads into the big song. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children. He's talking about Israel. Because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Do you deal thus with Yahweh? Oh, foolish and unwise people. Is he not your father? 
who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old? Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, he will show you. Ask your elders, they will tell you. And now he's going into a story. Um, At this point, I am going to have to deviate from this story for just long enough to talk to you about Bible manuscripts. One of the securities behind the scriptures is the fact that uh, no one can claim that there's like one real Bible somewhere. The problem with it, some people would really love it if there's the original Bible and it's in the Vatican, it's hidden, you know, it's on display there and you can go see the real Bible. The problem with that is, as John Mayer wrote, if you own the information, you can bend it all you want. So if there was one document that claimed to be the real one, then we would really have to secure that document against alteration and you just can't have done that, being how many hundreds and hundreds and thousands even of years people have been walking with God and holding on to this same text. I mean, the text we're reading in English today is thousands of years old. I mean, what other document is in the world that is thousands of years old? And it has been preserved, but one of the safeguards is there's not uh, any one place where they claim, oh, this is the real one. We have manuscripts from all over the ancient world, and they're from different times in history, and we can compare these manuscripts. And if there is a deviation from a... uh, Sometimes it's an honest error uh, from a scribe. Maybe uh, you're... If you can imagine, scribes are just human, and you're writing and writing, and let's say you ended on the word park, and then you look down and you look up again, and you start by writing the word park. So now it's in there twice. Uh, That's that's a common and obvious error. Well, then what happens is the scribe that copies your manuscript, he writes park, park, because that's what it says. And so he's not going to alter what he's reading. And so we end up with these families of manuscripts, and we can trace them back. And it's really great because we can see the families of transmission, because keep in mind, this was all hand-copied for thousands of years. It's really amazing that it exists at all, but it does exist, and it's because it has been so cherished and been cherished through the generations. So as we work toward translations, we look to uh, the largest and most trusted body bodies of manuscripts, and the, the ones that form the basis of most translation work for the Old Testament, it's called the Masoretic Text. It's very detailed, it's very clean and precise, it's got little scribal notes in the corners about like any uh, comments sometimes, but they're just very, very careful. The the sort of problem is the Masoretic text, the Jews out of uh, honoring God and honoring his word burned old manuscripts. So the oldest Masoretic texts are from like 1000 AD. This is very recent. I mean, it's, in, it's within a thousand years of us today writing this story of Moses. So... Uh, it's a, it's a very young manuscript in those terms. 
so, but that is what we, that's what we had to use because everything before that, you know, just dissolves and is, is not in good shape and, or is destroyed. So you had that text. And then about a generation ago, uh, as the story goes, a shepherd threw a stone at an animal high on a mountain in the Middle East in a place called Qumran. He heard a, a jar crack. He climbed up and found that uh, here had been a colony of scribes, and they had not burned the manuscripts, but they had put them in jars. And lo and behold, we had manuscripts from 1,200 years earlier than our oldest manuscript. And that's why Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls are such a big deal. Because then we had these really ancient manuscripts, you know, 1,200 years earlier than anything we had in our possession. And we could compare what the Masoretic text said so carefully with the ancient text from Qumran. And so uh, in almost every case... The manuscripts agrees in minute detail. So we've had really careful transmission, but there have been a few places where something was either, uh, there's that kind of accident that I talked about, where you write the same word twice, but there are also things called scribal glosses, where something in the text is offensive or troubling to the scribe, and he might moderate the word uh, just a bit. And so that's actually what I want to talk to you about today in this case, is something like that that appears to have happened in this Deuteronomy 32 passage. So now that we had older manuscripts from the Dead Sea Scrolls, again, it's a safeguard. Um, We could find some places like that. Now we have even an older source of document from the Old Testament And it is a thing called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is actually one of the early translations of the Hebrew. It's when the whole world spoke Greek in the 200s BC, okay? Uh, After Alexander the Great made the whole world one, it became the Roman Empire, but they spoke Greek. And so they went and had Hebrew scholars who spoke Greek and who also lived in a world of Hebrew and Aramaic, and they did a translation. It took 70 scholars, that's why it's called Septuagint, and they translated the first five books of the Bible very carefully, and they used manuscripts that were much, much older than anything that still exists today. So uh, the earliest manuscript right now, like the closest to us, is the Masoretic text. When you go back 1,200 more years, you get the the fragments and the manuscripts that are in the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran. And then if we read it in the Greek from the Septuagint, now we end up with an even more ancient. So I said all that to say, if there are times, and sometimes you'll look on the bottom of your, uh, your Bibles and they'll have a little footnote down there. And they'll say Septuagint says, and the symbol for Septuagint is LXX. Septuagint says this, or Dead Sea Scrolls say this. And that's telling you that there's a little bit of a contest about the translation of a word or the insertion of a word. And so in that case, I would want to go back and say, what did Qumran Dead Sea Scrolls say? 
and what did the Septuagint say? Because those are older voices than the Masoretic text that was used for most of the translation. Stay tuned. Okay, hope I didn't lose you in the weeds there, but it's pretty important at this point because we're telling the story. Moses is telling the story in a song about how the world came to be uh, a, a patchwork of 70 nations. Okay, now we're down to verse 8, and this is where it becomes important. Okay, verse 7, let me start that again. He says, ask your father... Ask the elders, they will tell you about how nations got started. And now verse 8 is the explanation for this. It says, When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam. Okay, we're talking about Genesis 11. When he separated the sons of Adam and when he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of, and I've got New King James, and it says, the children of Israel. Okay, that's the Masoretic text. What do the Dead Sea Scrolls say? The Dead Sea Scrolls says that Yahweh separated the sons of Adam and set boundaries of the people according to the number of the sons of God, the sons of Elohim. Now we're talking about spirit beings. And you say, okay, well, let's go even farther back. How about the how about the Septuagint? You know, so this is like before the the oldest manuscripts that you can imagine were used to make the Septuagint. Septuagint says, God set the boundary of the people according to the number of the uh, in Greek it's uh, angelon theu, angels of God, angels of God. So that's even more clear that we're not talking about any uh, humans, but we are talking about a circumstance where Yahweh has designated 70, Septuagint would say angels of God, Dead Sea Scrolls would say sons of God, uh, he has designated 70 of them as princes, and he has assigned each of them to a nation uh, in the newly formed group of nations, and he has given them headship and leadership over the nations. And uh, you might say, okay, well, that kind of sounds weird, but this is one of those things in... In some of the most important parts of the Bible, for example, the plan of salvation, there is nowhere in the scripture that you can say, oh, you should go read the book about the plan of salvation that's in the Bible. There's not one. It's in breadcrumbs, and you pull it all together, and then it starts to make sense. Paul says, and the New Testament writers say, the whole world lies in darkness, and that when we wrestle to evangelize the world, and we get pushed back 
by culture, by business, by the military, by the police, by the academic world, you know, and modern era, by media, when all these things align and unite and push back on the word of God and on the message of Jesus, Paul says it's because you are not wrestling with flesh and blood. You are wrestling with principalities. And prince, a principality is based on prince. It is a spiritual rulership over a region. And uh, as strange as this sounds to the modern mind, it was not strange at all to the minds of those who wrote the scriptures for us. So um, the point is, you know, I don't have, we don't have a relationship with the Bible. We're not called to obey the Bible. We have a relationship with the Creator God, and the Bible is a tool to help us understand Him, understand His heart, and understand the reality of this world and what He wants from us. And so the Bible comes to inform us and to help us think uh, thoughts we could not get on our own. It's a source of revelation, uh, not that we uh, obey the Bible, but we obey the Lord. And it, it aids us in establishing, if we want one, a relationship with Him. So this lays the whole groundwork for spiritual warfare. And it also comes to uh, bring into sharper focus the, the whole phrase. It, you know, the Bible opens with this phrase. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you just want a very rich Bible study, go to Bible Gateway or something like that and just type in heaven and earth and read every passage in the Bible that links those two together. Uh, and you're just going to, this is going to become so clear to you that uh, the, the big story of the Bible is not the story about, uh, I need a personal Savior so I don't go to hell. That is not the story of the Bible. Uh, it's a little piece of it, but that is not the story of the Bible. It's a story of two societies that God created informing his one perfect world that he is still going to get. It is the will of God, and he is determined to bring this will about, there is going to be this hybrid world of heaven and earth, and he is bringing it to pass with free will beings. And the two societies are both messed up. They're both fallen. They are both uh, out of order, and now there is war in the heavens, and there is war on the earth. A spiritual battle is has ensued, and we are wrestling. And uh, in Deuteronomy, he gives Moses this song to sing, and he says, Tell the children about the day that the Lord divided the earth among the sons. He divided the earth according to the number of the sons of God or the angels of God. So there are spiritual rulers that have been placed over the nations. Uh, I want to read you the footnotes from a scholarly translation by uh, a scholar named Robert Alter, and he's got a wonderful three-volume series that is his translation of the Old Testament. And I'm just going to read you the translation notes as he gets to 
you need to have your Bible open so you can follow along. Deuteronomy 32, 8. It's this exact verse that we're wrestling through today. The Masoretic text, I'm, I'm reading from Robert Alter's uh, notes. It's on page 729 of the first volume. The Masoretic text here reads, Benai Israel, sons of Israel, by the number of the sons of Israel. It is hard to make much sense of that reading, though traditional exegetes try to do that by noting that Israel or Jacob had 70 male descendants when he went down to Egypt, and there are, at least proverbially, 70 nations. This translation, Robert Alter's translation, adopts the reading of the text found at Qumran, which seems close to the Hebrew text used by the Septuagint translators. Benai Elohim, sons of God. This phrase, which appears to reflect a very early stage in the evolution of biblical monotheism, caused later transmitters of the text theological discomfort and was probably deliberately changed in the interest of piety. In the older world picture, Registered in a variety of biblical texts, God is surrounded by a celestial entourage of divine beings or lesser deities, benai Elohim, sons of God, who are nevertheless subordinate to the supreme God. The Song of Moses assumes that God, in allotting portions of the earth to the various peoples, also allowed each people its own lesser deity. Okay? Um... So you can see why this phrase troubled Jews, because it acknowledged the existence of other spirit beings, and they were afraid that it was going to be misunderstood as uh, polytheism and that there's just a whole bunch of gods out there, Um, not that there are created beings underneath Yahweh. We'll be right back. You can stick with me. Let's go to one more place. Same Deuteronomy. Flip over to chapter 4, verse 19. And uh, this is the beginning of Deuteronomy. And this is as Moses is laying out why they need to go over the laws again, because he's about to leave the earth and he wants a second explanation of everything that's come before. And he says in verse 19 that he has a fear. He says that my fear is, verse 16, I'll start there, lest you act ruinously and make you a sculpted image of any likeness, the form of male or female, the form of any beast that is on the earth, the form of any winged bird that flies in the heavens, the form of anything that crawls on the ground, the form of any fish that is in the waters of the sea, lest you raise your eyes to the heavens and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the array of the heavens and you be led astray and you bow down to them and you worship them. For Yahweh, your God, allotted them to all the peoples under heaven. So here's the exact same concept again, that there are stars above, 
And these stars, as we've said in earlier episodes, are representative of spiritual beings. And that he can say, yes, the stars are there. Yes, the earth is marvelous. And you see the hand of the divine in all of it. But do not bow down and worship them. Do not make images of God. And we know the reason is you are the image of God. Uh, Man is the image of God. Uh, But it's back to this idea that in the spirit world that God has created and among the leaders of the sons of God that have been created, you have leaders over territories and leaders over nations. Now this, actually I'll read another altar quote on that same verse, uh, page 632 of his first volume, uh, verse 19, this is his note. In a historical period rife with religious syncretism, and cultural assimilation, the writer stresses the dangerous enchantment of the beauty of the natural world, which could easily lead people to deify and worship the various manifestations of that beauty. Quote from the scripture, For the Lord your God allotted them to all the peoples under the heavens. Now back to the notes. This notion, which will be picked up again in the Song of Moses in chapter 32, is a curious one by the lights of later monotheism. To Israel, the worship of the one overmastering God was assigned, whereas the other nations were entrusted to the supervision of lesser celestial beings, the sons of God, Benai Ha-Elohim, and came to worship these intermediary beings as though they were autonomous deities. This leads to the whole battle of the Old Testament about Yahweh versus the gods of the nations and the gods of the nations taking the territories. You know, I'm coming to a position. You say, okay, why are you going into all this? I'm coming to a position about the spiritual breakdown in the heavenly sons of God that's reported in Scripture. I think in my childhood, and maybe it came through preaching, I had the notion of something like, you know, a great uh, convention, and everybody's there in the heavenlies, and then suddenly there's this angriness, and a group rises up and says, we will not serve the Lord, and then they storm out, and those are, you know, it's a devil in his one-third that goes with him. But that's not how it happened with humans. And so, as I'm reading the text for the text, it's making me wonder if what has happened in the spirit world, the same thing that's happened in the natural world, and that is that uh, God created them, they have free will, they were assigned based on their, their leadership, 70 of them were assigned over all the humans in the world, And their assignment was to lead them in righteousness and lead them to be the image of God in the world and to lead them and lean on them and help them develop uh, in their uh, love and uh, alignment with the the heart of the Creator God. In our next episode of Thread, we're going to go to Psalms 82, which talks about a court trial that God holds where he uh, calls these 70 uh, spirit world leaders to account for their behavior, that how they have used the trust 
of being given the leadership over the nations of the world, what they did to the nations. And Yahweh is not happy with what they have done with their free will in leading the humans. So it's making me think that one by one, these spirit world leaders started to like the idea of being the God to the people and began to elevate themselves. And we began to see uh, people worshiping heavenly things by many different names. You know, what we're coming to is biblical cosmology. Like how, what is this world that we're in? And how did it come to be the way it is? And why do nations have certain characteristics? And there's a you know purely uh, rationalistic way of explaining this, and that's what the world has tried to do for the last 200 years. But the Bible has a much older way of looking at this by saying there are spiritual entities that are behind the pillars of human society, and they have energized these pillars and they have energized them against the Creator God, and that what we have across the, the planet is a not just a collaboration, but a conspiracy against the Creator, a conspiracy to overthrow the Creator. It's the same spirit that was in Genesis 11 that wants to shake a fist at heaven, wants to pull down the great God, and wants to be the gods. And that same attitude gets into the humans, who also want to be the little gods of their own world and don't realize they're nothing but the puppets of the spirit world entities, and they're doing their bidding for them. We're all here with free will. We can all break away from this, and that uh, in the end, when we come back to this, it's very important for the gospel because Jesus, uh, to understand the gospel properly, Jesus trained 70 um Speakers. He trained 70 preachers, why 70, this same story, to go to the 70 nations. And as you go in, you know, it's all part in, in those uh, Great Commission passages in the gospel stories where Jesus sends his messengers and says, Now, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. That is uh, the good news Jesus comes back with is not to say, Hey, good news, you don't have to go to hell. He comes back with even better news, and he says, Hey, I have all the authority in the heavens and the earth. Therefore, go to all the nations. Go to those 70 nations and declare to them, King Jesus is now Lord. And that is the, the task of the church. It is the global task, and it is the local task. You go into the dark places of the world, understanding that you're, you are going to deal with in a I was just at a friend's ministry, an inner city ministry. That's just beautiful to see what they are doing there at City of Refuge here in Atlanta and Bruce Deal and his his team. But when you go into there, yes, you're going to deal with gangs and you're going to deal with uh, poverty and you're going to deal with all this human stuff, but you're also dealing with spiritual principalities when you go into there. You're going to have to – you can't just go there with bowls of soup and with uh, education programs and say, okay, this is going to solve the problem. Government has tried that. It's a spiritually energized problem. You go in there with authority, spiritual authority, and you're going to have to lay hands on people, and you're going to have to pray for them. You're going to need, some people are going to need spiritual deliverance. You're going to have to open the minds of people, and you're going to have to give them new free ways to think, and you're going to have to bring liberty 
because we are bound by our thoughts and we are bound by spiritual powers. And we've got to be the people of freedom. And this is a war. It's not a peacetime activity. It's not just about, you know, having little Bible studies. But the church has to understand it's in a spiritual war against the principalities and the powers that were established uh, rightly at the Tower of Babel to govern over the nations of the world. And now Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth, and he holds together all things in heaven and in earth, and he is rallying a people in the heavens, and he is rallying a people on the earth, and one day his kingdom will come. So it's it's an important foundation to a later understanding of the kingdom of God and the expansion of that kingdom and the job of those who follow Yahweh and who follow his son and our king Jesus. So it's um, it's just a, a big key to understanding the Bible. So I invite you to join me and study uh, this passage, Deuteronomy 32.8 and Deuteronomy 4.19, and look at how they uh, sharpen our understanding of what God has done in the world and what he is doing. We'll be back again. Oh, and if you disagree with me, I mean, we're still friends. This is not uh, a thing that is so razor sharp that I would say, this is doctrine, we have to all believe it. This is my current belief. Um, I believe that our faith and our understanding of the Bible should be something that's growing as we learn, as new sources come to us. Uh, The importance of the Bible is that it's an anchor for our thinking, that we don't just go flying off. And far too many of us spend about a hundred times more energy receiving the trash of the world through television and the internet and other books, and we do not spend adequate time trying to build a biblical foundation for our own thinking, and that is why I want to go carefully through this, uh, if you can believe it or not believe it, but I, I believe that what I am presenting is in alignment with the obvious text of the Bible. I don't like uh, fascinating new ways of seeing old scriptures just for the novelty of it. I don't, I don't want to be that person. I won't be that person. Uh, but I do want to open my mind and dig in, and I don't want to be bound as a Christian to being a rationalist. I don't want to just be the product of my age and be the same kind of person that everyone around me is. I, I believe that if I'm walking with God and if I'm bathed in His Word, my mindset should be fundamentally different from the people who are in charge of the messaging systems of our planet that are speaking their point of view to us every single day. So, Word of God. Very important. Important to study it verse by verse in context so that we get proper feeding from it. So, God bless you as uh, He puts His hand on your life and as He develops your ability to be used by Him as a freedom leader across the earth. Until next time, on Thread, God bless you and expect Him to use you. 